Welcome to the December 14th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. On today's podcast, the prognostic significance of the early thymic precursor, or ETP, phenotype in children with T-cell ALL. In the short term, the ETP phenotype was associated with poor treatment response, but with longer follow-up, these patients have excellent survival outcomes. And persistent leukemia after induction predicted inferior outcomes, regardless of ETP status. Up next, addressing knowledge gaps in the management of chronic granulomatous disease. Results from a large multicenter cohort indicate that hematopoietic cell transplant provides favorable outcomes compared to medical therapy. Furthermore, transplant outcomes are not impacted by oxidase status, genotype, pre-existing infections, or inflammatory diseases. Finally, the effects of pathogenic and likely pathogenic variants for inherited hemostasis disorders. Researchers used whole exome sequencing to examine the magnitude of effects on both laboratory and clinical phenotypes. Their data provides valuable insights into DNA variants in coagulation and platelet disorders. Let's go to our first research article, Prognostic Significance of ETP Phenotype and Minimal Residual Disease in TALL, a Children's Oncology Group Study. The first author is Brent L. Wood of Children's Hospital, Los Angeles. T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or TALL, accounts for approximately 15% of childhood ALL and was once associated with poor survival compared to B-lineage ALL. But in recent years, this outcomes gap has all but disappeared due to treatment intensification. Age, leukocyte count, and genomic alterations are all considered minimally prognostic in TALL. By contrast, early response to treatment as measured by a minimal residual disease, or MRD, is strongly prognostic. The early thymic precursor, or ETP, subtype of TALL, was identified in 2009. ETP lymphoblasts share features with primitive thymocytes, with no CD8 and CD1A expression, weak CD5 expression, and strong expression of one or more myeloid or stem cell markers, including CD13, CD33, CD34, CD117, or HLA-DR. Of note, ETP-ALL is often associated with high MRD levels. And in small, older retrospective studies, ETP-ALL patients had inferior outcomes compared to patients without ETP. But more recent studies, also small, have indicated that ETP and non-ETP-ALL are associated with similar outcomes. That leads us to the COG-AAL-L0434 study, which provides an opportunity to study the prognostic impact of ETP in a large, uniformly treated, and centrally classified cohort of contemporary pediatric and young adult TALL patients. Conducted between 2009 and 2014, this study utilized a prednisone-based chemotherapy backbone and a centralized reference laboratory to test for ETP status and minimal residual disease after induction. Importantly, MRD, not ETP status, was used for risk stratification in this trial. ETP status was available in 1,256 patients and assessed using 8 to 9 color multi-parameter flow cytometry on diagnostic peripheral blood or bone marrow samples. The classification included a category called near ETP, 
meaning patients generally met ETP criteria but had higher levels of CD5 expression. In all, 11.5% of the patients had the ETP phenotype, while 16.7% had near ETP, leaving 71.8% who did not have the ETP phenotype. In a preliminary analysis of this COG study, published in Blood in 2014, significantly higher rates of induction failure were reported for patients with ETP or near ETP as compared to patients without ETP. Now, Wood and co-authors are reporting survival outcomes by ETP status. A key finding is that ETP status did not predict survival outcomes. All three TALL subtypes had excellent five-year event-free survival at 80.4% for ETP, 81.1% for near ETP, and 85% for not ETP. Likewise, five-year overall survival was excellent and comparable between groups. At 86.8% for ETP, 89.6% for near ETP, and 90% for not ETP. In further findings, Dr. Wood and co-investigators report that MRD status identified inferior outcomes based on ETP status. A day 29 MRD of 0.1% or higher was associated with inferior event-free survival and overall survival in the near ETP and not ETP groups. By contrast, there was no significant difference in survival outcomes for the ETP group. Investigators also found that an initial white blood cell count of 200,000 or greater was predictive of inferior event-free survival and overall survival in both the near ETP and not ETP groups. But again, this variable was not associated with inferior outcomes in the ETP group. Altogether, this report of mature data from COG AAL L0434 is closing the circle for ETP ALL. That's the title of a commentary by Elaine Kustan-Smith of the National University of Singapore and Valentino Contur of the Tedamonti Research Center in Monza, Italy. These authors say this study is a critically important evaluation of the impact of contemporary risk-adjusted therapy in ETP-ALL. They note that the dramatic differences in early response based on post-induction MRD did not translate into significant differences in event-free survival or overall survival between each of the groups. Importantly, significantly more of the ETP and near-ETP patients had high-risk ALL and therefore received more intensive chemotherapy and more often underwent hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. And ETP patients were more often removed from protocol therapy as compared to not-ETP patients, so their survival outcomes may also be more reflective of off-protocol treatment. Altogether, this study establishes a reference for expected early responses and long-term outcomes with contemporary risk-adapted therapy, and it sets the stage for a new chapter for ETP-ALL, which still remains a puzzle in terms of its molecular underpinnings and resistance to chemotherapy. With further studies, we may learn more about targetable pathways in ETP-ALL and whether immunotherapeutic strategies may be of use in patients with this chemotherapy-resistant TALL subtype. The next article is titled, Genotype Oxidase Status and Preceding Infection or Autoinflammation Do Not Affect Allogeneic HCT Outcomes for CGD. The first author is Jennifer W. Leiding of Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. We know that CGD, or chronic granulomatous disease, is a primary immunodeficiency characterized by defects in the NADPH oxidase complex that produces reactive oxygen species and phagocytes. 
This results in impaired microbial killing, as well as immune dysregulation. As a consequence, patients with CGD are susceptible to frequent and potentially life-threatening bacterial and fungal infections, even despite microbial prophylaxis. And about half of patients will develop inflammatory conditions, including colitis and non-infectious pulmonary disease, that can be progressive and challenging to manage. CGD is inherited in either an X-linked or autosomal recessive manner, with the X-linked form accounting for about two-thirds of patients in North American registries. Early mortality is high, with only 50% of patients surviving into their 30s. The definitive treatment for CGD is allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplantation. Patients who undergo transplant can experience resolution of both infections and inflammatory disease. However, it's unclear which patients are most likely to experience favorable outcomes following the procedure. For example, it's largely unknown whether post-transplant outcomes are influenced by factors such as residual NADPH oxidase function or the presence of infection or inflammatory disease at the time of transplant. And comparisons of clinical status and disease manifestations in patients treated with transplant to conventionally treated patients are lacking. Those knowledge gaps are addressed in the present multicenter observational natural history study from the Primary Immune Deficiency Treatment Consortium. The study is based on 391 patients with CGD treated at 44 centers in the U.S. and Canada between 1996 and 2018. Altogether, 240 patients had undergone allogeneic HCT. The other 151 received conventional medical therapy which included antimicrobial therapy, plus surgery if indicated. The study is largely retrospective. However, transplant patients enrolled after the study start date of January 2014 were enrolled in a prospective cohort and followed longitudinally. Most patients were male in both the conventional treatment and transplant group. The median age at enrollment in the conventional treatment group was 15.7 years, with a range of 0.3 to 29.9 years. The median age of transplant patients at the time of the procedure was 5 years, with a range of 0.3 to 28.1 years, and nearly 11% of the transplant patients were 18 years of age or older. Patients with X-linked CGD were more likely to undergo a transplant. Results of the study, now published in Blood, indicate that a broad array of patients with CGD benefit from allogeneic transplant. With a median follow-up of 3.7 years after transplant, the three-year event survival was 69%, and three-year overall survival was 82%. The most common causes of death were infection, respiratory failure, and multi-organ failure. And these post-transplant outcomes were not affected by age, oxidase status, CGD genotype, or history of inflammation and infection. By contrast, event-free survival was significantly lower in transplant patients where HLA mismatched donors were used, or those cases with impaired performance status, indicated by a Lansky-Karnofsky score less than 90. The latter suggests that HCT should be considered early for CGD patients before comorbidities impact performance status. The two-year cumulative incidence of chronic graft-versus-host disease following transplant was 19%, which was extensive in 7%. Risk of chronic GVHD was increased in patients with a history of inflammatory disease or pulmonary infection in the year prior to transplant and 17.6% of transplant patients had graft failure or received a second transplant. Risk of graft failure or second transplant was linked to use of a mephalon-based conditioning regimen, early mixed chimerism, or both.
A distinguishing feature of this study is the comparison of clinical status between a cohort of CGD patients who were not transplanted with those that were. The investigators showed that compared to conventional medical therapy, transplant largely resolved infections and inflammation within the first year of follow-up, typically without later recurrences. By three to five years post-transplant, infections were nearly eliminated, as was the use of antibacterial and antifungal prophylaxis. Similarly, the overall rate of inflammatory disease was 4.1% for the transplant group and 37.5% for the conventional therapy group. However, since conventionally treated patients were not prospectively followed, survival over time could not be compared between the two cohorts. In a commentary on these findings, Taifun Gongor of University Children's Hospital Zurich says emphatically that HCT alleviates disease burden in CGD. According to Gungor, this study by Lighting et al. confirms that allogeneic HCT can significantly reduce disease burden independent of age, genotype, oxidase status, and history of preceding infections or autoinflammation. Of note, this North American study represents the second largest series of transplanted CGD patients to be published, the largest by Chiesa and co-authors and reported in 2020 in blood, included 712 patients transplanted at European centers between 1993 and 2018. Gungor provides a detailed comparison of the two studies, including some criteria where the outcomes compare favorably and others not as favorably. For example, Gungor says the mortality rate for transplanted patients in the North American study is substantial, with 42 patients, or 17.5%, not surviving, compared to 13% in the European study. Nevertheless, he concludes that inspired by the Lighting study, all patients with CGD could benefit from cellular therapies in the future. But there remain surmountable hurdles to overcome before that becomes a reality. These include optimizing regimens for conditioning and for prevention of GVHD. Our final article is The Effects of Pathogenic and Likely Pathogenic Variants for Inherited Hemostasis Disorders in 140,214 UK Biobank Participants. The first author is Luca Stefanucci of the Department of Hematology at the University of Cambridge in the United Kingdom. To date, more than 9,000 rare genetic diseases have been identified impacting more than 400 million individuals globally. For many rare diseases, genetic causes have been unraveled through the use of high-throughput sequencing. Yet the identification of pathogenic variants has remained difficult for a wide variety of inherited conditions, including many bleeding, thrombotic, and platelet disorders. Part of the problem is that an individual carrying a number of pathogenic variants may nevertheless exhibit no obvious clinical signs or symptoms of disease. That may indicate incomplete penetrance, but could also be related to incorrect classification of specific variants. In an effort to improve variant classification for rare diseases, a standard practice at diagnostic laboratories is for a multidisciplinary team to consider the pathogenicity evidence. Toward that end, they consult phenotype-first catalogs of variants, such as ClinVar, that are based on published data on variant pathogenicity. However, this approach has important constraints. For example, these studies of rare inherited disorders are generally based on only a few pedigrees or genetically independent cases. Information on minor allele frequency is often inadequate, and the predicted consequences of some variants are inferred from preclinical data and may not translate into human physiology. 
Today, an additional strategy for parsing out the genetic makeup of bleeding, thrombotic, and platelet disorders is the use of genome-wide association studies, abbreviated as GWAS. The present study by Stefanucci and co-authors is based on newly available whole exome sequencing genotypes for participants in the UK Biobank. This biobank is a prospective cohort of 500,000 British individuals aged 40 to 69 years when recruited between 2006 and 2010. Investigators utilized a GWAS-like framework and electronic health record data from 140,214 participants to calculate clinical associations between rare variants in genes for inherited hemostasis disorders that were identified by whole exome sequencing. As part of the present study, multidisciplinary teams of clinicians, geneticists, and bioinformaticians reviewed gene variants thought to be responsible for hemostasis disorders and classified them as pathogenic, likely pathogenic, rejected, or undecided. They also employed an interactome encompassing more than 18,000 proteins and almost 600,000 interactions to evaluate how interplay between common and rare variants exerts an effect on clinical traits in an effort to help explain the variable penetrance of rare variants. Investigators started by looking for variants with a median allele frequency of less than 0.1% because they are more likely to be responsible for rare Mendelian diseases. They found that UK Biobank participants had a median of seven such variants previously reported as pathogenic or likely pathogenic. They focused on 967 diagnostic grade gene variants for rare hemostasis disorders that they observed in 12,367 UKB participants. For a subset of the variants, they estimated effect sizes for platelet count and volume, and odds ratios for bleeding and thrombosis. In the wide-ranging results reported in blood, investigators found rare variants causal of some autosomal recessive platelet disorders that also had phenotypic consequences in carriers. Some findings were also unexpected. For example, loss of function variants in MPL which, if biallelic, result in chronic amegakaryocytic thrombocytopenia, were actually associated with increased platelet counts among carriers. They also show that common variants identified by GWAS for platelet count or thrombosis risk may influence the penetrance of rare variants in genes associated with hemostasis disorders. In network propagation analysis applied to the interactome, they demonstrated that some GWAS variants with large effect sizes were enriched in some diagnostic-grade gene variants. Finally, they showed that common variants can modify the effects of the rare variants and are one of the reasons for differences in phenotypes. So when it comes to pathogenicity classifications of rare variants, this new work moves the field from black and white to 50 shades of gray. That's the title of a commentary on the study by Andrew D. Patterson of the Hospital for Sick Children and the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Patterson says this research article provides useful positive and negative data. For some rare variants, their role in disease is strengthened by the data. For other rare variants, their role is now questioned. As an example, two specific rare missense variants in RUNX1 and MECOM were not significantly associated with platelet count or volume, contrary to previous reports suggesting their pathogenicity. By contrast, a number of other variants met statistical significance criteria, and the magnitude of their effects on platelet and clinical traits are provided, which are important data for interpretation and clinical translation, according to Patterson. The back and forth is to be expected as Patterson quotes from proposed guidelines for investigating causality of sequence variants. Unambiguous assignment of disease causality for sequence variants is often impossible, 
particularly for the very low frequency variants underlying many causes of rare, severe diseases. These findings from the UK Biobank aren't specific to hematology, as similar reports are available in developmental disorders and monogenic diabetes. However, Patterson adds, the data published in blood provide valuable insights into DNA variants and coagulation and platelet disorders. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.